internalized capitalism is the idea that the market determines what I am worth as a person and that my self-worth is validated by constant productivity and that the minute I become not productive anymore, I become useless and valueless and purposeless. Hmm. And so how we keep making sure that we are safe in an environment that maximizes scarcity as the best way to do business is that it, it does it, it. We internalize this sense all of the time that anxiety is the best way to know that I'm working hard enough. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Bo. Hey friends, this week I am so excited to introduce you to writer and psychotherapist Eric Mitten. Hannah and I got to chat with Eric about his new book, It's Not You, It's Everything, What Our Pain Reveals About the Anxious Pursuit of the Good Life. One, as I say in the interview, that's an incredible title because who doesn't feel the weight of that hearing it? Second, the conversation was so illuminating, encouraging, and frankly, permission-giving. Eric has a unique and fresh take on the mental health crisis that we're facing as a nation, and we talked all about the anxiety and depression that were exasperated in the last two years, but really have been under the surface for so many of us based on the way that we pursue, construct, and live our lives. So I felt challenged, I felt called higher, but I also felt a sense of, whew, I'm not the only one. So sit back and get ready to take some notes as you meet our new friend, Eric Mitten. Welcome, Eric. We are so excited to be sitting down and chatting with you virtually today. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, I'm so happy to be here with you all. And I would love for our audience just to get to know you a little bit. We often joke on our podcast that nobody gets into the helping profession by accident. Usually there is a story that got us there. So what kind of prompted you to enter into this space as a psychotherapist? That's a great question. Uh, No, my wife did it before I did. And uh, before I got into psychotherapy, I was working as a professional Christian, which means I get paid to pray. (laughs) I was working as a Baptist. So I was working at a church. And so I kept seeing the work that she was doing. And when we were in graduate school together, I did a master's in divinity and she was in a school of psychology there. We went to Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. And so I would go to some symposiums or things that she was learning while there. And we did a group together. Uh, with a mentor and a professor of hers. And I kept loving the way that they talked about the world and the work that they got to do. And so for the whole time, I thought, man, that sounds interesting. And then I had my own things happen with in myself, personal stuff, having a kid. Uh, my wife did most of the heavy lifting there, but I was present while it happened. And um, <laughs> you know, having all of those kinds of experiences folding on top of me and also navigating my own kind of religious conflict in terms of what I believed about the way the world should work. I began thinking more and more heavily about, oh gosh, like the work that Lindsay gets to do every day, it seems exhausting. And, but she doesn't talk about it a lot. Like I do, like she doesn't complain about it. And mm-hmm. she's helping people ask way more interesting questions about what motivates the facts of why they're doing what they're doing or what's going on with them. And I never got to ask those questions with people when I was working in a more religious or Christian context. And so that for me has been a really great fit. It's not been easy to become a psychotherapist and to keep doing it, especially during the end of the world. But at the same time, I think that the work that I get to see happen with people 
is just a real gift. And it's different than any other work that I've done. Yeah. I love that. Before we move forward, we often use a lot of different terms on this podcast. Can you define psychotherapist? What's the difference between psychotherapist, counselor, therapist? Like how, how do you define the work that you do? Yeah, I know that that is really helpful. I think every time people say like, what, what do you mean? Because I just see somebody and they, they use the language they use. So for us, it, it's helpful because anytime in, and I'm in East Tennessee, so in Knoxville. So anytime I'm in Knoxville and I tell someone I'm a therapist, they're like, oh, I saw somebody for my back. Can you look at my knee? And they think I'm a physical therapist. Uh, and I think like, no, that would have been a better yeah, choice. Yeah, uh, but I'm not. Uh, or they think I'm an occupational therapist and I help people kind of redo some life skills after they've had major surgery or they've had some developmental changes. So for me, psychotherapy is twofold. It helps clarify that I'm not doing something cooler and easier sometimes. And that also that they don't want to keep talking to me afterwards. Because the minute they find out that I'm that kind of therapist, it's amazing how quickly they need to go to the bathroom and never come back. So really, it sends people out. Right, right. But what helps clarify for me is that I'm not a licensed professional counselor. I do feel like you've had two careers that could be conversation stoppers. Like I'm a pastor or a psychotherapist. Those are two careers that are conversation stoppers. Yeah, I, and I like opening with that at dinner parties where I don't know anyone. So, you know, it's, it is really fun. They're like, oh, and what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I'm an ordained Baptist minister and a psychotherapist. And so, yeah, immediately they, they never come back. <laughs> um, so I just assume they're afraid I'm going to baptize them or tell them their dads never loved them. So either one is fine. Um, yeah, but yeah. I, yeah, yeah. But I, bad psychotherapy joke. But for me, it's, it's just a helpful clarifying point that I'm not a licensed professional counselor. I'm actually a licensed marriage and family therapist. And so for us, we like that pivot because it helps us understand that we do. And the kind of work that my wife and I do is a little bit more psychodynamic Rather, it's not psychoanalytic where we're not laying you on a couch and look and sitting behind you and asking you questions about your dreams necessarily, but it is a little bit more psychodynamic or existential. And so for us, we want to approach that from a systems perspective. And so that's why we've always been licensed marriage and family therapists and not counselors. And that's because we're trying to provide like psychotherapeutic work in that kind of tradition that is psychoanalytic or psychodynamic. So that's, that's why I use that term. Yeah, that's super helpful. Helpful clarification. As a psychotherapist right now, we're in, I would say, we're in a really unique time. And I feel like I've been saying that for two and a half years. So at some point, it's just the reality. It's the reality we're living in. But what are some of the trends that you and your wife are seeing in your practice with your clients and kind of macro level as that, a society? I think you called it the end of the world. So the end of the world. In the beginning. <laughs> No, it, it's, it's, uh, it is a lot of fun. Like I, I tell people, you know, uh, the end of the world is a boom town for mental health care, right? So everyone is now, at least here in the South, is regularly talking about therapy in ways that, was ne- that were never the case when we first got into this or even when I was a kid. My parents split up when I was pretty young. And so I did see a psychologist and a couple of therapists like throughout my childhood at different points. But that was pretty clearly because my family was uh, in, in bad shape. And so that's why I saw some, or I was in bad shape, you know, so I got sent to a therapist, but it was not something that I would tell people about or that my family would talk about. And so knowing that that was kind of the vibe for a long time here in the South and then going to school in California, it was very much the sense of not, do you go to therapy, but uh, who do you see for therapy, which is a much different environment. And so for us now, I'm, I'm finding that more to be the case here in the South. So mental health care is like a regular part of people's conversations or they're asking one another or even folks that are far different generations than me are saying, oh, maybe I should do that. 
I mean, I've been living with crippling depression and anxiety for years now, but maybe I too should see a therapist. So it's been fun to like hear people like have these kinds of conversations within themselves and with us. So that, that has certainly changed the, again, from a 30,000 foot view, the kind of way that I hear it talked about in our community. And then from a standpoint of the fact of people are just anxious and depressed regularly. And so we're seeing a lot of that where maybe even people that have left and had, had ceased seeing us on a regular basis uh, return at some point during the pandemic or their work kind of significantly shifts or changes to more management of these kinds of on-again, off-again anxiety and depression symptoms that we're seeing. I think that for a lot of us, what we would say is that COVID exacerbates pre-existing conditions. So for a lot of us as Americans, there are a lot of pre-existing conditions that we live with. There are a lot of, as American parents, I'm myself in one, there are a lot of pre-existing conditions that we live with all of the time that then when you layer COVID or this sort of global apocalypse that keeps kind of happening on top of that, it really pushes the pressure that we're barely kind of holding up. And so then it sort of flattens everything. And then all of us seem to be having a similar experience, even though we're very different. So for us, that, that's been the case, is that whatever people were uniquely going through themselves, COVID kind of had this way of exacerbating a lot of that. And then we're kind of going through this shared traumatic experience together, but feeling pretty lonely uh, in the midst of it. So I'd say like generally, that's, that's kind of what we're seeing at work. Yeah, I love how you talked about we're going through this shared experience but still somehow we're feeling lonely and operating in it alone. I have been reading your book, It's Not You, It's Everything, which is an incredible title. And my wife came up with that, by the way. It's important for me to say that. It's important for you to say that distinction, (laughs) yes. But I think it's really interesting when we talk about anxiety or depression or mental health crises in general, you share that we have a tendency to internalize that and put that on like, I'm having a moral failure, or it's very individualized. Instead of looking at the global aspects as well, of, hey, I'm not the only one that's experiencing this or what's happening that might be contributing to this. And so can you speak to, as the U.S., I think we're in a mental health crisis and why are we not addressing it or how can we view it differently that maybe we could address it differently? uh, I think one of the ways that I really like conceptualizing this is a lot of my work is with whole family therapy with adolescents and teenagers. And so typically what will happen is that people will bring their kid in to see me because their kid is not doing something that they want them to do, or they are doing something they don't want the kid to do. And our approach as family therapists is to say uh, primarily that kids are the like physical symptoms of whatever the pain in the family system is largely. Mm -hmm. So when families are bad at communication or there's unclear boundaries or there is tension somewhere in the family system, we would say kids are the best at telling you exactly what it is by being it themselves. And so for us, like what we find is that like when, again, middle schoolers sit on my couch, this one in fact, and they take responsibility for their parents' divorce by, you know, feeling this pressure of like, you know, I I must have done something wrong or I need to be doing something differently or I need to be managing this in a different way. You know, one of the most important things for us as therapists is to kind of normalize that experience of like, yeah, no, 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 that that 100% makes sense. And then to, uh, for me in my practice, I'm a little bit different than other folks maybe, um, but I will say something like, yeah, I know when you, you turned 12 and your baby brother was born, you did kind of let yourself go. So you're right. You really, you didn't keep up with things like your mom and dad needed you to. And usually because they're, I'm not very funny, <laughs> I'll wait for a second. And then they'll start smiling and saying, wait, what? And I was like, yeah, exactly. That's how you sound to me right now. Is that when you as a 12 year old are taking responsibility for the dissolution of your fully grown adult parents' marriage, it sounds ridiculous. 
doesn't sound that way to you. And so that's one thing that Americans are pretty typically able to do. It's like, oh yeah, no, it's crazy when kids do that, right? Yeah. But then when we ourselves are saying, yeah, I, you know, like Eric, I'm just having a lot of anxiety right now. I don't know what the problem is. Is there like a loose hose in my brain? And I think, yeah, I mean, maybe, sure. I can get somebody to look at that. But also, uh, have you read the news on your phone today? Yeah, look around. Uh, or about, yeah, or uh, have you uh, tried to find childcare for your kid or formula for your baby or diapers or figure out, like, you know, how to be a public health expert during the end of the world when you were told that if you made the wrong decision with your kid, they were going to die or your loved ones were going to die or your community was going to die. Or that if you did make the wrong choice, that they were going to be psychologically and academically stunted forever. And then you were left to make that decision on your own. In my tradition, it's what we call parentification. And it's where kids are given developmentally inappropriate tasks in their families because their parents are unable or unwilling to provide that structure and stability for them. And so it's why kids take responsibility for their parents' divorce or why they parent siblings in the absence of a parent doing that job because that parent is incapacitated by sickness or substance abuse issues or a job that prevents them from being at home or why kids suddenly end up taking on extra jobs to cover family expenses. These are examples of parentification. And one of the worst parts of it are that when kids ask questions about, hey, is this normal? The answer that they get from their families is, yes, no, I don't know what you're complaining about. Why are you upset? Um, this, I'm your parent. I'm definitely in charge. Why are you worried about this? I love you no matter what. When the underlying communication is, if you don't do this, bad things will happen. But the overwrought communication is, this is normal. Everything is fine. I don't know why you're complaining. And then if we take that on a societal level as Americans, we would say like, oh, this is the conversation all the time. So when we say, oh, you know, like, of course, healthcare is a situation where uh, when my wife, as she did during the early part of the pandemic, accidentally cut her hand open and require emergency care. She's okay now. The first thought in my mind, I wish I could tell you was, oh gosh, is, is she going to be okay? It's uh, after I'm not great in a crisis, uh, which makes me a wonderful therapist, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> after being like, what, what's, what's going I'm on? Therapist like, what? uh, this is terrifying. After I got over the initial shock of seeing that much blood, my next thought was, which hospital is in network? And what is our deductible? Oh, and do we have gosh. coinsurance with for yeah. ER visits? Immediately, I'm thinking about this in my mind while my spouse and loved one is mm. bleeding. And so that thing, if I talk to people, everybody, most Americans like you're doing, just nod and say, oh, yeah, no, yeah, totally. I know what my deductible is. Yeah, you should check that out. But if we stop and look back, like that's an insane question to ask. Yeah. That's a really, yeah messed up question to ask. Yeah. What are we, why are we asking that question? You know, but, and then we think to ourselves, okay, yeah, no, that, that system makes total sense. Yes. Uh, it makes total sense that, you know, 134 healthcare CEOs made like in 2018, like a combined over $1 billion in set in take home salary while subsequently bankrupting, I don't know, somewhere around like 10% of Americans roughly each year for medical costs. Uh, and then we think like, oh yeah, you know, it's just cost of doing business. And then we think to ourselves, wait, hold on, wait, what are, what are you saying? about that. And so for us, like this is the kind of system all the time that has been normalized for us. Yeah. That then we just sort of learn to grim and bear through and kind of grind through just like middle schoolers who are taking way too much responsibility for what their parents refuse to do for them to care for them. Yeah. Wow. And so anxiety and depression are normal responses 
to these sorts of things. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I had never thought about it, especially in that systems of family way. From a systems perspective, like how do we begin to right size that? Like, can we? Is the over is the overwhelm too great? Like, are the factors like how do we begin to navigate our way through that? You, know, I think you're you have a good question there. That the undercurrent is like, is it hopeless? Right, right. Because you're like, can we actually? do anything about it. Feels this. like a lot. Yeah. And I would say individually, there is this thing that happens to us. You know, you know it's like, okay, Eric, uh, walk me through some policy <laughs> that a uh, young person here in the Southeast can implement to change the American right, culture. Right. Yeah, no. But again, that's the same kind of pressure a lot of us feel right. all of the time, yeah. right? When you said like the pandemic is this kind of collective traumatic experience that all of us are going through individually and feel totally alone yeah. about. People that will encounter this podcast on Instagram, on their phones, will have a shared experience with it, but they have an utterly unique curated feed that the technology company does for them that no one else shares for them. So while they too might be wearing all birds they heard about on Spotify, like me, <laughs> uh, they're experiencing that disparately and separate from me in a, in a world I will never know or understand right. and whose targeted ads will not reach me. And so for us, I think it's recognizing the first step I want people to do is interrupt the responsibility they feel to change the world. Mm. Please, it's killing us, especially as Americans. It's that first thing about if I don't check the news on my phone, the world will implode. It's already doing that. But if I don't check the news on my phone, like I'm going to miss out on that. Eric, are you a millennial? I'm a geriatric millennial. It's really depressing. Geriatric millennial. (laughs) Yes. Well, you are. really great But I think... That that phrase like change the world. I feel like that feels some of the biggest pressure that I carry every day. That I think I was like, you know, we were told from a very early age, like you can go change the world, you can go and do whatever. Like I think that Not only you can, but you should. You should. I don't yes. know if you mess around with the enneagram very much, Eric, but I'm an enneagram eight, and so that's like my number one thing. It's like justice and want to do right for the world. And I I think it's so interesting and helpful. I've never heard someone prompt me to not do that, to, to interrupt that responsibility. Say more to that. How do, how do you help people not just have permission, but actually see the health benefit for themselves and others if they actually do that? That like the way we're approaching it may be wrong. Yeah. Well, and I, I, again, I don't, I love people's efforts at, at making the world a better place for sure. But for me, I, I think if all of us, if we got that messaging, because all of us did, we, we, we got the branding it would have already worked. The world would already be changed. It would probably already be better. And so the first thing I, I like to tell people is that if it were up to you and it were up to your effort and we're up to the number of times that you pull down to refresh on your phone or the hashtag like social justice campaign that you engage in online, it would have already worked. And it doesn't. So then for us, we need alternative solutions right. that will not come from you taking personal responsibility for changing the world. So that's the first thing. I'm a mm-hmm. pra- I'm a pra- I'm mm-hmm. pragmatic at, at at heart here. And so if again, if all of us taking individual responsibility for our own kind of self care branding, like pr- productivity, grind culture, world changing endeavor, it would have been effective already. So um, first of all, it hasn't been. So let's do something in- more interesting. And then the second thing would be when people are in distress, which again, like the world produces this kind of response all of the time. 
So when people are in distress and our phones are doing most of the heavy lifting here, social media, it's, we, it, again, there are a lot of resources that I could point you to in the direction about how it does this. But in particular, it's going to maximize and get the most value based on really intensely negative experiences online. That's going to drive people's utilization of the content. So it's, it's primed to giving you the most emotionally dysregulating content possible because it keeps you connected to the feed. It keeps you commenting. It keeps you talking about it. It keeps you regularly engaging in it. And so their goal is for you to do that. So it's going to do that every time. And then so for us, when people are emotionally dysregulated, we would, we would tell you that that's not where your most creative solutions to life show up. I'm a great endorsement, but people like going outside. And so when people occasionally go outside and they go hiking in my neck of the woods near the Great Smoky Mountains and they see a bear in the woods, their first response to that bear is not like, oh, gosh, well, sometimes it is. They get closer and they get a picture on their phone because the Disneyfication of all of life has communicated to people. It will probably sing to me. <laughs> but if they're not doing that and they're appropriately upset, their first thought is not, you know, is that a black bear or a brown bear? And is it native to this region? I should Google this first. And then I'm going to get a little bit closer so that I can check out what kind of bear this is. No. No. Um, and, and pardon my French. They get the hell out of there. And they don't get the hell out of there by going the most creative way back to their car about like, you know, I think there's some wildflowers on this path. If I take, it's a little bit longer, but I think it's worth it. No, you go the quickest, most easily accessible, most intensely helpful route you can take in that moment. Because binary thinking in an acute stress response, like stressful environment is really helpful for keeping you alive and surviving a bear attack. It's just not great at solving complicated problems that are besieging our globe right now. And so that's, that's the secondary response is that if we want more collaborative, creative solutions to emerge from a higher level, more intensely rational or interesting place, we need that part of our brains that controls most of that thinking to be engaged and activated. And so that's what I would say as well is that it is a little bit counterintuitive to say, I need you to stop trying so hard to change the world so that we can start working together to do something more interesting to actually be effective at that. And to do that, I need you to slow down the rage machine and the productivity machine just a little bit. Does that make sense? Maybe I'm not answering your question. It totally makes sense. Um, Okay. When you just said that, when you mentioned the productivity, I think that we all want to try to do something to fix the problems that we're facing with as a symptom of control. We want to control it. We want to produce. I want to do something to aid the problem. But when you said that, it really prompted me in your book, you talk about productivity and you use the term internalized capitalism and how like that concept of if we're more productive, can, can you speak to that? What is internalized capitalism? How are you seeing that show up and how does that relate to all of this? Yeah. No, if you want to have arguments with loved ones at Thanksgiving dinner, please talk about capitalism. Great. That's perfect. <laughs> but anyway, aside from that, that disclaimer on the front end, um, no, what we would say, and lots of different people are talking about it. It's, it's not really, I, I don't like to think of it as an academic terminology. What it is, is just an internal disposition to the way that we've been taught to talk about productivity and safety in our culture. So for instance, uh, when people say, why are Americans so anxious? My first response is, well, we were taught pretty early on that anxiety is a great accelerant for productivity. Mm, and so if I'm thinking yeah. about a project that I need to get done, I'm worried about how it's going to go. I'm thinking about it at night. I'm becoming more intensely productive in response to that anxiety Then yeah. I'm actually producing more content. I'm actually producing more work. And so we were taught this early on as kids. Standardized testing really helps with that of saying like, hey, if we had some high stakes testing here, maybe that would really grease the skids in terms of how kids are going to learn reading and math. Or yeah. when we think about it at the office, it's a question of like, oh, what am I not doing? 
how am I coming up short? What do I need to be thinking about more? How can I pivot this toward my own brand? How can I yeah. keep myself safe and secure in, a, in an environment that mostly doesn't value me and will not take care of me? And so that's what we would say underneath all of this. What we would say internalized capitalism is the idea that the market determines what I am worth as a person and that my self-worth mm. is validated by constant productivity. And that the minute I become not productive anymore, I become useless and valueless and purposeless. And so how mm. we keep making yeah. sure that we are safe in an environment that maximizes scarcity as the best way to do business is that it, it does it, it. We internalize this sense all of the time that anxiety is the best way to know that I'm working hard enough. And so for, for me, mm. that's what I would call this more like internalization of capitalism because I'm more of a, I like to think of myself as more of a systems thinker. And so we'd say like, okay, like right. so this idea has been kind of imbibed in us as people who should change the world individually. I mean, I grew up like folksy kid from Knoxville, Tennessee, going to like just some boilerplate elementary schools and just trying to make my way in the world. And this idea that he was baptized with this sense of like world changing glory is bonkers to me. But aside from that, I also carry within me this idea that like, oh, because of that potential, I should be doing something with it all of the time. And I think this plays out by the way that we talk about how intensely anxious our adolescents are right now. And if we look at that from a productivity culture standpoint, we would say these kids are worried about how they're going to keep themselves safe in an environment that does not value them unless they're productive. And that these adults have already proven their productivity. And now they're on the tail end of that and they don't have worth anymore. And so for us as Americans, that's why I want us to have larger ideas about like why we're feeling the way that we are, because we probably learned it from somebody. Does, does that help kind of like, because uh, that's what I want. I want to depathologize that language and just help people understand that kind of baseline anxiety about your place in the world. And it's helpful to know that that's true. Yeah, I think um, a phrase that we use a lot at Onsite is like helping people stop being human doings and rediscover being a human being. And I think the word that I kept hearing you say is safety. It doesn't feel safe to stop. It doesn't feel safe to be at rest. It doesn't feel safe to not be productive. So much of my own personal value, I think, comes from what I produce. And I think I'm swimming in the same water. Like, you know, I'm a product of, of that. And so you talk about like rest being a form of resistance, but how do we rest? Like, I, like how do you define rest? When biologically it doesn't feel safe, especially if someone has experienced significant amounts of trauma, like anxiety can be a way to keep ourselves feeling safe. Like, what do we do with that? What would be your kind of encouragement there? Oh, that's great. The thing that I I really appreciated uh, in writing the book was the realization that I am really bad at swimming and have been for a long time. And so one of the things that I'm really ineffective at doing as a 37-year-old man who's not great at swimming is I can't tread water very effectively without just burning myself the hell out. And my wife was a swimmer for most of her life and is very good at it. And my son is seven. He's already kind of surpassing me and will tell you uh, in vivid detail how much of a better swimmer he is than I am. One of the things that she'll tell me is that like, Eric, you have to relax. Like you have to relax your body and let the water hold you up. Like you're pushing down so hard on it that you're going to drown yourself and you're going to wear yourself out and you're not going to be able to keep yourself up. And so for me, some of the things that I even find people doing at work, they're coming to see me for therapy. They're on Instagram all the time consulting the self-care industrial complexes, ideas about how to do mindfulness, like at the beach and stuff, I guess. And they're like reading self-help books 
and they're doing all these app-based like uh, journaling things. And they're just like self-cared to the max and they're drowning in it because the whole thing is like this undercurrent of productivity culture is that my mental health is bad and I need to get better at caring for it. They're still transferring their productivity just to like good things. Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. And so for us, like that's what we want to ask questions about is the minute that you find yourself like, again, getting into this like grind of, I need to get better at this. Like we're already undermining the work and we're not allowing the water to kind of hold us up and to keep us safe because we have to have this baseline level trust that we are people who are able to be, as you said, human beings that are loved and supported and cared for independent of the work that we do. And so when I talk to people about rest, especially in this kind of culture as a form of political prophetic resistance. And there are a lot of great other people that talk far more eloquently about this than even I do. Uh, one of the, the woman's name is, is Trisha Hersey. And she's part of the, the nap ministry where she helps people, particularly uh, marginalized people, people of color to take naps in public in front of other people as an act of resistance, this kind of grind culture. And I think she does a brilliant job talking about this. And so her work is really inspiring to me. And Audre Lorde is another person that really talks a lot about like just the act of existing, especially as a black woman suffering from a debilitating terminal illness is an act of resistance. And so for us, I think it's recognizing that in these kinds of spaces, the most important thing that we can do is treat our self-care less as, again, part of productivity culture's mindset of like, how can I quickly get myself back to work? How can I rest in order to be more productive on the other side of things? And that's the thing that undermines it. I want it to be, how can I rest as a way of reminding myself that I'm not alone, that the internet and what I do on my phone is not who I am, that there are people in my life that I stay connected to that remind me that life is about these human connections that I collaborate with and produce sort of lasting change in whatever part of the world I live in. And that ultimately that I can trust people in my life to keep me safe and then I can keep myself safe Yeah. by not continuing to worry about drowning, but by just trusting that something will hold me up. And so for me, like that might be someone's religious tradition. That might be someone's connection to families that they create themselves or that they they come from. It might be from any number of things, but if it's in order to get you back to work and to keep yourself safe with more productivity or more income garnishment, or more other things that can kind of keep you safe from scarcity, it's going to be undermined immediately. So that's what I want. I want rest to exist for itself, rather than existing so that then you can do X, Y, and Z. Hey friends, Mackenzie here. I want to take a minute and tell you a little bit of a story. So prior to 2020, we had long dreamed of creating accessible and affordable resources that would meet people wherever they are, in their homes, at their workplace, with their people, in their struggle, in their healing, and in their growth. Like so many of you, we found ourselves nudged into innovation during the last few years. The pandemic fast-tracked our digital dreams, and as a result, we launched our digital efforts with a few practical resources to help you navigate the unprecedented times and heightened sense of loneliness, isolation, stress, and loss of control we were all feeling. We're really proud of the content that our world-class team put out, but we wanted to enhance our online environment to help you optimize your healing and growth by infusing a little more of that healing hospitality that OnSite has become known for. So about a month ago, we introduced OnSite Online, 
a new enhanced learning environment to help you optimize your relationships, your health, your leadership, and your life. This improved learning environment features greater interactivity with the course material, a better user experience, and access to our enhanced resources within a new community environment. If you had already purchased a class or course from OnSite, you have probably gotten several emails from us encouraging you to get into the environment and join our new beta community. But if you have yet to check out all that is OnSite Online, now is the time. You can head to onsiteisonline.com and to celebrate the launch of this new digital platform, I want to make sure that my podcast listeners get 15% off our entire resource library with the code podcast. So all you have to do is head to onsiteisonline.com and use the code podcast. Yeah, I like how you just used different routes to get to rest. I think a lot of times we think of rest as like bubble baths and beach vacations. And I mean, I know when we all were thrust into the pandemic, it was like making this puzzle and baking this bread and all that sort of stuff. But I like how you were just talking about rest as a form of almost trusting yourself and trusting other people and trusting relationships again. And so I think infusing other people into your rest is a really cool concept. And I wonder what that looks like for you. What does like relational rest look like for you? Oh, that's great. Um, you know, when I'm not performing for someone, uh, that for me is a good sign that I'm myself. So in these contexts, it's because the way that this works for all three of us, this is a performative context. And so we're being these hyper-realized versions of ourselves where I am kind of a downer all the time and my wife will happily report that to you. And so I'm regularly just spouting this kind of nonsense all of the time in ways that are unhelpful for our family. But for the most part, I'm not on a podcast. And so for me, like what it means to rest collectively with other people is this shared sense of whoever we are that shows up. Uh, it's fundamentally okay. Because even if we don't belong, for instance, if we're in a context that is really unsafe or it feels that way, like we're at a place where people have different political ideas than we do, or we're at Thanksgiving with family of origin that is uncomfortable or unsafe to be around, or we're just in a context that feels unknown or unclear. That for me, like one of the things that keeps us safe is not by controlling other people so that they stop doing the things that make us feel unsafe. And then eventually we'll, we'll have some sort of internal equilibrium. It's by reminding ourselves that we already belong and naming and bringing to mind the people that specifically give us that sense of belonging. And so for me, like that's sometimes that what those people don't even have to be in the room, but it's just being around people and reminding myself who those people are that do not care and will not listen to this podcast, but they care about me on like a cellular level. That is far more interesting and creative and helpful than anything else. So that, that's kind of what it looks like. So it might just be sitting with people and not talking to them at all who care about me. Yeah. I have sort of an antagonistic question. I'm just curious around your relationship. You, you just like, yeah, I just find you very fascinating. And I relate to a lot of what you're saying, but you just called yourself a downer. You say you have a lot of like dread around this, you know, the end of the world yeah. and all of this. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, how mm-hmm. do we, even if we're limiting our consumption of that, like you've really encouraged us to get off yeah. our phones, stop trying yeah. to fix that by yeah, consuming yeah. and yeah. all of that. Yeah. 
how do we engage with it, have boundaries with it, mm-hmm. even outside of consumption? Like I'm the type of person that thinks about these things all the time too. And so I know I'll want to go after I hang out from this podcast, I'm going to go want to talk to my partner about it. And sometimes that's productive. And sometimes that is not like, where do we have boundaries around where we engage with kind of the end of the world feelings? Because some of it's real and we need to look at it and right size it. And some of it is also like, how are we calling out the good we're seeing in us? How are we being in the present moment? Like, where's the boundaries? And where, where's your experience at the intersection of all of that? I thought you said this was going to be like a contentious or like uncomfortable question. Like, I really like that very much, actually. I guess maybe like, what if you want to engage with it? I, I, I think where it came from, from an antagonistic standpoint, is you were joking and you said, like, I'm a downer, much to like the yeah. detriment of my family or something like that. Maybe what's the boundary with that? Like, it's not down to engage with it all the time. But like, how do we do it in a way that honors other people in the process? If like, if I go hang up, and I want to go talk to my partner about this, maybe he's not in the headspace too. like, how do we hold, I want to explore some of this stuff, because it's fascinating. And because it's real. And because there is the there has to be hope in it. But also, how do we honor ourselves and others in our relationships? And how do we rest amongst that? So for me, like, that's what I want to tell people. The news is not a thing in and of itself. Like it's like, or just like social media is not a thing. Like there is no, I have a friend of mine who's a professor of religion in Nashville and his name's David Dark. And I think he's a genius, but he talks about all the time. There is no the media. And so for us, I think it's like helpful to understand that first of all, like when we are in these contexts, they're all unique, they're all different, they all intersect with us differently. And so we can ask questions really straightforwardly about like, hey, what does your media consumption look like? But we really need to get on a granular level to talk about like, well, what is it really doing for you? And so for me, that's one of our approaches. And we come out of this, my wife and I come out of this school of thought called restoration therapy, which not important, but it started as contextual family therapy many moons ago. And then it became new contextual family therapy. And now it's restoration therapy. But the approach is centered around these ideas of justice, fairness, equity across generations and what generations owe to one another. And the foundational underpinnings of this are love and trustworthiness are the things that we enter the world being owed from the people that we come Mm. from altruistically. And so for us, like what we would say is that when people are in pain, when they're not getting what they need and what they are owed from the people they come from, from the world at large, that one of the things that it does is it discolors the ways that we do normal life functioning. And so for us, like we might be finding ourselves when we're in these acute stress moments, doing the things like for myself, I'll talk about me. What I do when I'm in stress is I become anxious And I start ruminating on what's happening. And then I become like, I start working a lot. Like I read a lot. I get on my phone. I like read books. I write things. I wrote a whole book. Uh, During the pandemic, I found out that if I ran, that it would really help with the chest pain I was feeling with my anxiety. So then I ran a marathon at the end of that, which again, says a lot about my own productivity culture. And so that's happening with me. And then I get burned out and irritable yeah. and start disconnecting or withdrawing from other people. And eventually, if it gets bad enough, I might blow up and say something that I regret because I'm so angry. And so if you asked me when this is happening, Hannah, Eric, what are you feeling? Like a, like a dumb therapist like me. And then I would say, well, I'm yelling, you moron. So I'm probably angry. But the problem is that we would say that anger, sadness, those like inside out emotions are secondary or responsive emotions to primary feelings about our lack of safety and identity in the world. Mm -hmm. And so for us, we would say, we want to know like, oh, is it feeling that you don't belong and that you're misunderstood or that you're alone? 
or that you're not cared for or that things are really unfair and unsafe in ways that are like demanding action from you, either to withdraw or to be really engaged, or that you're ultimately afraid that you're going to be a failure and that people don't actually want to be connected to you ever again. And so when our activity is motivated from pain, according to our tradition, again, it makes our movements lack trustworthiness. And so for me, that's what I want to ask people when they're talking about how do I consume, how do I consume the news? I want to say, like, what's asking you to consume it? Like, what's asking you to talk about this? Like, what's asking you to seek this information out? Like, where is the impulse coming from? Because there is no the news. So it's like, what news? Which one? Like, what do you want to talk about? Like, what's motivating the conversation? Because for me, when I'm feeling particularly hopeless, that confirmation bias shows up in my Google search history pretty quickly. And then the way that I talk about it is just seeking more confirmation from other people that remind me, yeah, Eric, it is hopeless. End of conversation. So that's when I become incredibly unhelpful to myself. So that's what I want to ask people is, what are you doing with the content you are consuming and creating? Because what it does in the world is far more interesting to me than like what it is. And so then I would say like, oh, if it's doing this thing that disconnects you from other people, that ends collaborative conversation, that it like only provides helplessness or hopelessness or no creative responses to those things, there's a time and a season for that, for sure. Resting is part of that. But that's when I want people to do that. I want people to withdraw from the news on purpose as an act of rest and resistance and not because they're so depressed that they become helpless and hopeless and then they stop doing it. Because you're going to stop caring about the world either way. Right. And so I'd like people to choose to stop caring about things when they are themselves so that they can do something more interesting rather than not caring about things because they don't care about anything anymore and are just wearing soft pants and watching Netflix. Mm -hmm. So Hannah, does, does that make sense? Like, I just want like every like I don't, there's no, it's value neutral. How much you talk about these things or don't for me, I just want to know, like always asking yourself, like, where's it coming from? And then what is it making me want to do? Do I want to connect more? Do I want to connect less? Do I feel like more like hopeful about things that I can do next? Or am I feeling disempowered and hopeless? Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause that would really give me the, the information I need to decide how I'm doing it. That's really helpful. Yeah. I think it's a, a call to listen to our pain. I, also feel like a lot of this conversation feels like we need to bring in the concept of like inequality and privilege. And like, I almost feel there were parts during the pandemic where I started to engage with things that maybe I hadn't engaged with before. And I realized, oh, it's a privilege that I get to turn this off. It's a privilege that I can say this doesn't personally affect me on a community systemic level, but even having a broader understanding of the world and how we actually all collaboratively find freedom is by engaging with that. But I just think I'd love to hear you speak about how does inequality, oppression, systemic racism, systemic inequality play into this conversation about how much we can choose to engage or not engage with something. Oh, that's great. You know, and I would probably frame it the same way I was framing my response to Hannah's question. The first thing is like, what are we feeling about ourselves? Yeah that motivates the lack of activity or the hyperactivity. Um, I think all of us were caught up in that moment. If we are a person who is interested in these conversations as a majority person, I'm a cisgendered white guy who lives in the Southeast. So this idea, like it's, I think it's just dripping off of me all of the time. So it is really rich for someone to hear me talk about like, you should really prioritize your rest. And it's like, oh, interesting. Again, white guy from the Southeast who used to be a professional Christian. Tell me more about your experiences in the world. 
So yeah, no, I, I totally admit that. And so that's why I think one of the most important parts of that process is recognizing how much, again, not utilizing their work, but letting it inform me how much listening to authors and practitioners and scholars of color in the midst of their own dealing with oppressive and systemic pressures that are unfair, devaluizing and dehumanizing them as people. How do they resist these sorts of things? What do they have to teach us about the ways in which one is a human in a system that tells him or her constantly, you are not a human. You're actually not worth anything. Like how do people, because chattel slavery is the foundation of America's history. So then it taught people for generations that they are worth physically what their body can produce. And then now here we are years later, and I'm telling you the same thing is that we're taught that we are worth what our bodies can produce. And so who we need to listen to are people who have just like lived through that generational trauma and have carried that with them for hundreds of years now, because they have much to teach us about what it means to resist this kind of culture all of the time. So that's what I would say as well, is that if we're reading and learning and studying, again, I can speak only for myself as a cisgender white guy, then I want to ask myself, like, what am I attempting to accomplish by bringing these authors and people and community activists into my space? Am I trying to consume them so that I can get right back to work in furthering my brand or by, again, positioning myself in the right way on the Internet? Or am I actually doing the work of listening to them independent of what it says about me or what people say about me so that I can actually accomplish the things that I want to accomplish or that I want to see happen in the world around me? So to kind of wrap all of that up. I think one of the things that we want to notice is that, like, again, maybe it is an act of privilege to not care about the news. But I think for all of us, I think every human deserves that privilege. So my first thought would be like the what's the word I want to use? And I've been reading uh, Shoshana uh, Zuboff's um, surveillance capitalism book that came out a few years ago. And it's, it's brilliant, but she talks about the ways in which technology in our lives has become this thing that is ubiquitous and that we can't change. It's tectonic. Like it's just going to happen to us no matter what. And so for me, like, I just, I want to consider like maybe all of us need to have that privilege. Maybe all of us are owed that experience together. And that when we not just disengage from like, oh, I don't want to have this conversation, but we say like, okay, like I want to take a step back to actively resist this kind of constant performative culture because it does just consume more media for itself. So, you know, for me, it doesn't, it doesn't actually help people in my community who are marginalized by systemic racism. If I read Ibram Kendi's book, like I did and just tweet about it and feel better for doing that. What changes is me reading his work and letting it inform what I do next. And maybe that happens when I rest and I start having conversations with other people. And I remember that I have a place of belonging and that I'm not alone and I'm not a failure. Even though I benefit from systemic racism, at the same time, it's complicated. That then allows me the kind of flexibility and creativity to then withstand conversations where people ask really uncomfortable questions about my privilege. So that I can say like, oh, yeah, no, that is really interesting. I think I do benefit from that. Like I, people that I'm friends with could not have bought houses in my neighborhood mm-hmm. when, you know, the housing boom happened after the GI Bill in World War II. My grandparents directly benefited from that because they didn't have savings. And friends of mine 
grandparents could not have owned homes. And that's why they are, have been lifelong renters for many generations and don't have inherited wealth that they're passing on to each subsequent generation. So for us, yes, like Hannah, I want to know the information and I'm going to get to the bottom of it. But when it's coming from a place of pain of trying to prove to people that no, 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 I'm a good kind of white guy. Again, Twitter will eat me alive with that kind of nonsense. So then I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is finding the information so that I can actually do something tangibly different. Yeah, thank you. That was a really profound and thoughtful answer. And I just really, I wish I was taking notes and want to go back and listen to it. It made me think of one little section in your book where you say, so our actual liberation can only lie entangled with the fate of those whom we have rejected, avoided, competed with, ignored, judged, imprisoned, and sometimes even crucified. And just the what you were talking about, like, how do we learn from generations of people who were brought up in systemic trauma that said your body is what you are worth? And so I think that was just really profound. And I appreciate you thoughtfully answering that for us. And I love that we could all get the privilege to take the space that we need away from the constant information that comes into our brains. As we are rounding out, we often ask people, what is a practice that keeps you centered? Um, our podcast is called Living Center. So what is a practice that helps you live centered? Oh, that's great. And I really appreciate you all asking that question. So for me, it ends up being, gosh, I wish I had a better answer. You know, you like ask that question. I have this idea that it's coming in the back of my that's mind. Okay. And then I think like, oh man, I don't have a good <laughs> answer. Uh, and so then I think, well, maybe it's because I'm not actually doing that much of the time. Mm. And so for me, one of the things that kind of reminds me that I'm not actually doing a very good job of this, even though I'm hashtag branding about it all the time, is that my son, it's not his job, but the way that he operates in the world gives me an opportunity to reparent myself in the ways that I deserve to be parented as a kid. And in the ways that I hope he parents, like whatever weird dog breeds or humans, he decides to raise in the future. And so for me, like when I respond kindly to his emotional dysregulation or when I allow him to ask questions about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, or I get down on one knee and I look him in the eye and I get space for him to just slow down and kind of talk to me about those things. I don't always do these things, but when I do do them, like I am reminded that the world is a place where people can belong, where like we can be around people who it doesn't matter what we do, that they will accept us and they will always let us crash on their couches. And if I can do that, even in the midst of like modern American parenting stress of like never having enough, never being safe, like never knowing where childcare is coming or if your school is going to be canceled or whatever, then I have to believe that like other people can do it too. And then my son is probably going to be able to do it the more that I spend time with him also practicing it. So for me, it's not about feeling centered ever. I wish I did more actually, but I'm bad at keeping myself afloat. It's more about just pretending like I am and letting the sort of ground around me hold me up. Uh, while it's happening. So yeah, so I just try to practice whatever my idea of being centered is maybe, and then hoping that that's enough. I like that. It's so practical. And I feel like it goes along with a lot of what we've been talking about is you just kind of got to do it or not do it. Like you have to get off of social media, stop doing this. Like, because sometimes our feelings take a minute to catch up. Like you just admitted, like, I wish I felt more centered all the time, but I'm going to, as an act of resistance, do the things that I know will eventually lead to that because it's, it's setting up a new system to support you to feel centered. And that's why I think it's a cool approach for this whole conversation is you've looked at the system and said, like, I'm not always going to want to do this 
or just get my head in a space where I can do this. But how do we systematically, culturally, individually, families, set up systems in which we can thrive? So whether that's getting offline and connecting with someone, kneeling down and connecting eye contact with your kid, like these are systems that are going to support health. And I love that that is really practical and actually encourages us to, to do something or stop doing something and slow down a little bit. Yeah, no, Hannah, you've you've done a much better job than I explaining it, and so I really like how you're saying it. So for me, it, it helps it helps me remember which is, you're good at your job. So it, it just it, it does it helps me remember that all of us deserve and are owed love and trustworthiness. Yeah, like we didn't choose to exist, we didn't choose to be here, we didn't choose to get these messages, but here we are. And so sometimes because the world is unsafe and unhelpful, and parents are complicated and imperfect humans that raised us or didn't. Mm-hmm. that we have a chance now to do something oh, more yeah. interesting for ourselves and for our kids. And so we can yeah. feel that it's pressure to be productive yeah. and to perform, or we can choose to say like what you're saying is like, Oh, or I can parent my kid and I can parent myself in ways that we deserved by making space, listening, slowing down and empathizing with the pain rather than immediately pointing it back towards some other productivity culture move that we can make next. So yeah, no, thanks for clarifying that for me. I appreciate your time. It gives us a lot of age of agency back, you know, that we actually have control over some of those things. I think especially around the reparenting stuff, like, yeah, like you said, we didn't get to choose that, but we get to choose how we engage with it now. And so I think just like anything, yeah, we, we have more agency than we like to believe when we're in overwhelm, stress, anxiety, when we just look at the big factors and don't zoom in, we forget that we have, con- we have some control and agency over how we get to navigate this life. Thank you so much, Eric, for this conversation. It has been so good and the time flew by, but I just hope everyone who just has gotten a little bit of taste of your humor, of just the way that you bluntly say things and the way that you are offering us a new lens would get curious today and go pick up your book. It's not you, it's everything. So thank you so much. Thank you, Austin and Gift. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.